Section 8 of The Heirloom. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Andre Floria. The Heirloom by T. Duthie Lyle. Chapter 8 The Broken Spell. How transient are the gilded hopes! How deceptive and passing are the brightest promises with which we are often beguiled by the elusive semblances and pretenses of this world. How often and how surely fallacious and misleading are what we think and what we call the certainties upon which we are tempted and deluded by a false confidence to build our fondest hopes, to take as the very foundations, the very cornerstones of the happiness of our lives. When we view it with the calm and dispassionate eye of experience and of wisdom, we can but perceive the limited scope of the circumvision of man. We can but perceive that we wander in a veil of darkness and of tears, in which our eyes are blinded, our steps are prone to wander, our feet may err and stumble for lack of light. Then let us thank heaven that there has been shed across the gloom and darkness, across the religious and mental moral blindness of our race, the bright illumination of a diviner light. Given that we only subdue our pride and submit our steps to its guidance, we may survey with passive eye the tumults and disquietudes of those who become wrecked in an ocean of perplexities and stranded on the sands of doubt. These may be no pages wherein to moralize or philosophize, but when the circumstances of a life have to be written down, when its lights and shadows have to be traced out, when its sorrows and its brightnesses have to be portrayed, to be chronicled in the verbal coloring in the way in which it is the peculiar function of the novelist to perform, the writer can but become impressed with, he can but endeavor to impart, with unskilled and prentice hand though it may be, certain of the cardinal truths which arise before him and force themselves into prominence in his mind and like landmarks with no uncertain significance stand out from the depths of life like beacons looming over some dark sea set forth too obvious to be disregarded too bright and heaven-sent to be set at naught too applicable to all men to be misunderstood and fool is he whose self-reliance and conceit prompts him to neglect their warning lights. Life's lessons and life's teachings come to us oft in the guise of hard, incontrovertible facts, truths hard for us to digest, nevertheless needful for us to know. But the teaching of life's mill which grinds so small, so very small, was a schooling which the young man whose energy and thoroughness had substantiated his claim had re-established his paternal and ancestral rights, and whose authority was felt over the beautiful domain of Vernwood, had yet to undergo. That out of the bright and silvern sky may burst a deluge, which may engulf a life, was what Bertram Gnault had to learn. Life's lesson was to be impressed upon him, as if with a hand of iron, in words of fire, in characters of blood, to wreck his life, to destroy his body, perhaps to wreck and cast away his very soul. As the heir of Vernwood awoke from his pillow on the day following that long afternoon, 
Its pleasant recollection came rushing into his mind. I write pleasant, but that is not the word. But I write it because in the language in which I am writing, in the vocabulary upon which I am drawing, there is not to be found. There has not been set down the word which tells adequately and fully the length and breadth and depth and height of those two hearts is love. As young Bertram Gnault awoke, as he unclosed his eyes from sleep, as he looked around him on the light of another day, as there rushed in at the floodgates of his memory, the earliest morning tide of rational or irrational thought, he seemed to awake, to open his eyes, to look around him onto another and a different existence, onto what in his eyes was as another, and almost like unto a golden world, a world from which very much of what is life as we live life, all that is prosaic, all that is commonplace, had been eliminated and dispelled, banished as it were to some other sphere, and in its stead had arisen a world, gilded, brightened, glorified by a transcendent light, a life in which the turn of some marvelous kaleidoscope had changed, and retinged for him the hue and coloring of all things, changed the aspect of life as if by the magic influence of some necromantic spell, as if there had been shed over it the potent influences of some magician's wand. And yet, it was not that nature around him was changed. No, still the flowers bloomed, the winds sighed, the sun arose and sank in the heavens gloriously, and gave to man and beast and earth and trees and woods and skies and flowers his heat and beneficence and light. The birds caroled, the squirrels played, the waters in the rivulets sparkled, danced and sang. All nature laughed around him as of yore, but the spell and influence was one that had fallen over Bertram Gnault's life. In his eyes, the dower house was a fairy home. And yet, it was not that that was changed. For him, each dewdrop was a crystal gem. And yet, the dewdrops were but water distilled to perfect purity by the hand of God. For him, each modest, blushing flower seemed a drooping pearl. And into all the prosaic trivialities of life was reflected what seemed the brightness of another sphere. Thus, it had come to pass that one woman's love and presence had shed a more than natural brightness, an almost more than terrestrial radiance over the young Bertram Gnault's life. He submitted himself as usual to the assiduous personal attentions of the young Jules Massey as his body servant, but in a dreamy, abstracted, preoccupied mood. He seemed almost too lost to himself to view the world about him with his usual eyes. The world of his affairs for once seemed to his imagination dwarfed into insignificance or rather, even to drop altogether out of his life. There seemed to be about him, to be ever hovering by him, a bright, visionary presence which he could only see with unearthly eyes. Having completed his toilet, Bertram dallied through the first meal of his day in the same absent-minded abstraction of thought, rather than eating, rather than its being any attempt at the recuperation of his physical life. It was a mere toying, a mere trifling with food. And then... Having loitered about his home, doing some twenty things in general, and on the whole accomplishing nothing at all, he sallied forth. Again, the summer morn was bursting forth with all its freshness and all its fullness of vernal life. There was the ever-sparkling ripple of the bright and laughing waters, 
There was the ever-dancing sunshine as it played and smiled amid the thick canopies of leaves. There was again the blithe and rapturous carol of the birds. There was the glad, bright freedom of the breezes, as they seemed to sport along the hillsides, or play hide-and-seek between the trees, across the ethereal blue, in a firmament that seemed to have the brightness of heaven in Bertram's eyes. There floated great, broken fragments of sunlit clouds. His abstractness notwithstanding, Bertram lost lover that he was, saw and listened to, and drank in, drank into his very soul of the overflowing cup of nature which seemed around him to be brimming over with the flood of life. More than it had ever done before, it seemed to fill his heart with its overflow of gladness, to infuse into his being all love and peace, to permeate his spirit with the very breath of life. Slowly, he sauntered under the bright green archways of the overhanging trees, adown the hilly road. All thought of any decided or definite purpose seemed absent from him. For all consideration of his affairs, for the improvement of his marital state seemed, for once, to drop out of his life, as a state of things unworthy of thought. One controlling influence seemed to pervade and permeate his life. One passion and one thought alone seemed to possess him. Here and there, as he wandered down the road, enclosed on either hand by the thick woods, scraps of the surrounding landscape were visible through the breaks and openings between the trees. At one point of vantage, from a turn in the road, the mansion with its surrounding and adjacent lawns and pleasances came into view, nestling peacefully, almost lovingly it seemed, in the valley beneath, while sweeping broadly past it and following down the valley amid the winding tertuosities of the hills, dancing in the morning sunlight, there flowed the bright and sparkling reaches of the stream. For a few minutes, the young man lingered. He seemed arrested, fixed to the spot, by the fairy, picture-like beauty of the view. It was like one of Turner's masterpieces. It seemed to be infused by supernal, a preternatural beauty. There seemed to brood upon the landscape a warm, bright, but unnatural glow. Some peculiar atmospheric condition seemed to shorten, almost as if to cut off distances, like is sometimes the state of the atmosphere before a storm, to bring things unnaturally near, as it were almost to annihilate intervening space. Bertram was arrested by the coup d'oeil, and his own frame of mind rendered him peculiarly susceptible of fascination. But then, as he gazed, as if to heighten and intensify the fascination in his eyes, that the landscape might not lack the figure which an artist would have painted into it to give it life, he could see in the distance, wandering slowly, pensively it seemed, about the lawns, the figure of the reigning divinity of his being, the supreme goddess of his world, Marjorie. His pulses seemed to throb more quickly at the sight. Through the far-off, intervening distance, through the glorified, sunlit morning haze, the valley called to mind some classic veil, and its divinity looked like the realization of Homeric verse. The lover quickened his pace along down the steep road, until, right on the Ionic marble bridge, which extending from the lawns, spanned here one of the narrower reaches of the stream, at the same place where so lovingly, so regretfully, so tenderly they had parted the night before, Bertram and Marjorie again met. He hastened forward to meet her. With his lover's ardor, 
His first impulse was to clasp her to himself, but a strange something in her manner seemed to restrain him and keep him impetuously at bay. It was not that she was cold to him, not that she was even constrained, no, but one glance of his quick, sharp lover's eye told him of a cloud. She looked not one whit less fresh, not one whit less lovely, not one whit less loving than the day before, no, but there was an overshadowing which even he, even her lover, could not fathom or understand. As she stood on the bridge waiting his approach, something that looked like a letter, caught by the fresh morning breeze as it rose from the surface of the water, fluttered to and fro in her hand. And then she stepped a few paces quickly towards him. Bertram, dear, I must go to London. Hardly stopping to acknowledge his salute or return the pressure of his hand were the first words she spoke. To London, love? He ejaculated with unfeigned surprise. It seemed so uncommon an event for her, whose entire life and love seemed to be always so confined, so completely centered in her beautiful rural home. Yes, to London, Bertie dear. I must go. St. Clair must be dying. Look at that. She held up to him between her thumb and finger a small plain diamond ring, through which was tied a knot of narrow pearly ribbon. Merely a simple plain circlet of gold was it, in which was set one tiny pure brilliant stone. Yes, I gave her that long, long ago. Years ago. Yes, Bert, love, before I ever saw, or heard, or thought of you, when I and Alice St. Clair were schoolgirls together. We were fast friends then, dear. That is, you know, fast friends as girls are friends when they are at school. Poor Alice. She was a devotee, a religieuse, and there was some great sin upon her conscience, some great weight upon her mind, that she would not tell even to me, her bosom friend. And so we parted, parted vowing lifelong friendship as schoolgirls part. I gave her that, and she said she would treasure it as a token, a keepsake, a treasure, but that I must never expect or hope to see her or it again until we met in heaven, or unless I came to her when dying, dying under the torture of an unconfessed or unrequited sin. In that case, if I received back my token, she made me vow to hasten with all speed to her side. And so I vowed. And here is the token come back to me again. Poor child, mused Marjorie, as resting on her lover's arm, she gazed thoughtfully and musingly, very sadly, down over the marble balustrade of the bridge into the water beneath. Poor silly child. We parted as school friends, and she had sworn to abjure the world and give herself to God. I believe she joined some sisterhood. She renounced the world, although she was rich and beautiful. She was clever and accomplished, too, and might have had the world at her feet. Evidently a weight, a burthen of intense, deep, plaintive sadness, a sadness greater than she expressed, bowed Marjorie's spirit down at the revival of a girlhood's memory, resuscitated out of an almost forgotten past. Bertram was puzzled and perplexed. Amid all their confidences, what Marjorie had just told him opened out a new chapter of her life, which she had never till then shown or revealed even to him. Not that he believed that the episode had been intentionally withheld from him. No, it could not have been that. 
It must have been the sudden revival of a recollection which must have faded and passed, as it were, even out of Marjorie's own life, the love and friendship of a girlhood eclipsed by, absorbed into the deeper and stronger love of womanhood, just as the sickly and imperfect beams of our weak, puny, artificial modes of illumination are eclipsed and overpowered, and absorbed in the glorious advent and the incomparable refulgence of the rising sun. Marjorie's lover had enough of intuition in him to know that it would be as easy to divert the course of the broad limpid stream which flowed beneath them with its silvery flow as to turn a fully determined woman from the fulfillment of her plighted vow, on the accomplishment of which she was fully bent. So the next best thing he believed he could do was to aid her in rendering its accomplishment easy and safe. Then I will go with you to London, he said, if it must be so. No, Bertie, you will not. I shall go alone. There was no hesitancy, no half-measures, no compromise, but only a stubborn, determined woman's unreasoning, unbendable willfulness in her tone. She was in one of those feminine moods that was not to be driven, not to be guided, not to be led, but only determined to go blindly forward to what she believed to be the accomplishment of her intentions, the fulfillment of her vow. No, Bertie she repeated in a decided tone. You cannot go. I have ordered the carriage to be ready at two o'clock for F to meet the train, and you can go with me as far as there. That is all. Then the two walked slowly towards the house, she leaning on his arm. In the library there was a scene with the old man, her father, which it is needless that we should recount, but woman had her way. At two o'clock that day, Captain Gillingham's carriage rolled away from Vernwood, Although the summer had passed its prime, all nature around echoed with its sweetest music and had decked itself in its loveliest garb of green, as those two lovers rolled through some of the loveliest scenery of the English shires. But an unwanted silence, an unwanted sadness seemed to hang over them, full as their hearts might be the one to the other. All in all, the music of nature which rang in the outer world seemed to lack all responsive echoes in their hearts. Again and again did Bertram essay, by joke or repartee or conversational arts, to disperse and dispel the overhanging sadness, and to lay the demon of pervading gloom. But bright and free and joyous as was every item of surrounding life, those two hearts were overhung by an impenetrable cloud. An hour's drive brought them to the town of F, and with the usual errands, the usual obsequious attention accorded in an English country town, to the occupants of a carriage drawn by a pair, and then the usual bustle, and the usual confusion, and the usual adieus, and Marjorie Gillingham all in all, worlds upon worlds as she was to her lover, became otherwise no more than one out of the thousands of passengers which daily mingle in one or other of the great rivers of human traffic, which all converge and all lead from one way or another, for rougher or for smoother, for better or for worse, into the great central ocean of metropolitan life, in which are swamped and buried or lost the hopes and longings of so many lives, lives which have departed on their voyage pinned with so many high ambitions and so many gilded hopes, no more to be realized than the deceptive mirage of the desert proves to the thirsting traveler to be a health and life-giving sea. End of section 8